Good morning, uh, brothers and sisters. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm uh, 47. And we all know that the book of Psalms has been, uh, over the centuries, an incredible source of blessing, of uh, comfort, of hope and joy to the church. And every uh, summer and over the past uh, few months, as we continue to look at these uh, different uh, psalms, looking at these songs of praise, looking at these songs of uh, joy, and many times these songs of fear and songs of uh, pain, but also of songs of faith in God and in His promises and in who He is, my prayer is that our love for the psalms, our love for the Word of God, both of the scriptures of the Old and New uh, Testament, our love for Christ and for His church will continue to uh, grow in our hearts. And the 47th Psalm, as we're about to see, presents us with a hymn of victory, and it's a hymn to the Lord as the sovereign King of all the earth. You might see that's uh, uh, the title in some of your Bibles. God is King over all the earth. And in this Psalm, the psalmist exhorts not only the Israelites, not only his covenant people, not only the church, but the psalmist invites all nations to worship the only true and living God who is king of all the earth. The psalmist is calling all peoples to acknowledge the ultimate and absolute sovereignty and kingship of God. Derek Kidner notes that from the first word to the last, this communicates the excitement and jubilation of an enthronement, and the king is God himself. God is mentioned 11 times in the nine short verses of Psalm 47, and the message that the psalmist is trying to get across is that God is king. And because God is king of all the earth, there are some reasons of why we sh should worship our God. Ellen Ross summarizes well the message of this psalm. He says, all people and nations of the world are called to acclaim the sovereignty of the Lord who has subdued all nations, given his people an inheritance, and has ascended on high where he reigns with absolute authority. So let's read this great psalm about our great God and King over all the earth, Psalm 47, and this is the reading of God's holy word. Beginning with the title, To the Choir Master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shoes of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to the preaching uh, of your word, we just pray that you open up our hearts so that we may respond with uh, wonder, with love, and praise at you, our king, our conquering king, who is king over all the earth. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to look at this psalm, at this passage, under two simple headings. Praise the conquering king, 
and praise the reigning king. So we should praise the conquering king, and we should praise the reigning king. So first, praise the conquering king. Look at the initial call to worship on verse 1 to praise the conquering king. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. So in this initial call to worship, who is this call being given to? Clap your hands, all peoples. This vision that we see here is worldwide. And these words, if you notice, peoples, nations, and all the earth is not only words that dominate this psalm, but actually in book two of the psalms, there's a heavy emphasis on the peoples, on the nations, on all the earth. The vision here is worldwide, and this call to praise and worship is given to all peoples, to all the earth and all these nations. And this is actually a call seen in many other psalms as well. Look at Psalm 67. It says, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. And this is actually Psalm 67, one of the psalms that we usually, many times we sing here in our worship uh, service. And you see here the emphasis on the peoples, on the nations, and on all the earth singing praises to God. And O. Palmer Robertson, he interestingly notes that in book one of the Psalms, which goes from Psalm 1 to Psalm uh, 41, we see that in Psalm 2 that the nations, the peoples, and the kings of the earth are actually setting themselves up against the Lord and his anointed one. And throughout book one of the Psalms, we see the conflict between the peoples and the nations and the kings of the earth who are going up against the Lord. But it's interesting to note that there's a shift in book two of the Psalms that goes from Psalm 42 to Psalm 72. The same peoples and nations and kings of the earth who are setting themselves up against the Lord now are being called to worship God, are being called to worship and recognize that God is the king of all the earth. It is a call of praise to all the earth, all the nations, all peoples are to raise a shout to the Lord. Remember the words of Jesus in the Great Commission? He said, go therefore and make disciples of a few nations. Go therefore and make disciples just of one continent or just one section of the earth. No, the Lord told us, go and make disciples of all nations. All peoples of all tribes and languages and nations are called to believe in God to repent of their sins, to turn away from their idolatry and come into his presence and to worship him. You know, this psalm begins with this reminder that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go to the very ends of the earth. Remember before his ascension, the Lord told, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then when? to the ends of the earth. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Truly, brothers and sisters, what a remarkable call to worship. This universal aspect of the call to all peoples and all nations and on the earth to recognize the absolute and ultimate sovereignty and kingship of God. I don't even know how many nations we have here today represented. I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 or even more. And we see the promises, as we see the promise that God gave to Abraham that one day, 
And we are seeing this promise being fulfilled that all nations are going to come and worship and recognize the absolute sovereignty of God. And that's what we're doing here today as we gather every Lord's Day as the Lord's people. People of all nations, we are recognizing His authority and His rule over all things. And after this initial call to worship in verse 1, in verses 2 to 5, the worshipers are actually told why they should worship God. Why should all peoples, why should all nations worship the conquering king? Look in verse 2. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So first, for the Lord, the Most High. For the Lord is the covenantal name of God. Here is Yahweh. And it's very interesting to note, as I mentioned, in book one of the Psalms that goes from Psalms 1 to Psalm 41, actually the covenantal name of God is used a lot more often than the generic, uh, general uh, term for God, which is Elohim. I think there's somewhere, don't quote me on that, but somehow 80 references to Yahweh to about 20 or so references to Elohim in book one of the Psalms. And in book two of the Psalms, as the shift focus on the peoples, on the nations, and on the kings of the earth, actually it's the opposite. Elohim is used about 80 times or so, and the covenantal name of God is not used as often. Why is that? Well, commentators note that now the emphasis is on all the nations. Because in Genesis 1, when God creates, right, Genesis 1, the name Elohim is used countless other times, about 30 times in Genesis 1. And God is creating all the earth, and He's creating all the peoples. So here we see this shift in the name of God. And in this psalm, out of the 11 times that the name of God is used, we see Elohim being used eight times in this short psalm. Why? Because there's this emphasis that God, Elohim, the creator God of Genesis 1, He is the creator of all the earth, and all the peoples are called to believe in Him. And the first time, no, so we see the Lord, the Most High, and the Most High is actually the Hebrew Elion, the God who is elevated in glory, the God who is lofty in dominion, most great in power, the one who rules over all the nations. And the first time this name for God appears is back in Genesis 14 where Melchizedek is introduced as the priest of the Most High God. And it's interesting to note that back in, in Canaanite religion, the Most High God, or the High God, was the head of the pantheon. But in the Bible, Yahweh is described as the High God. He is the Most High God. He is the head over all things in heaven and on earth. And even though, as you read your Bible, you see that the Bible speaks of other gods, the gods of the Canaanites and the gods of all the other nations, these are just idols. They're gods out of the imagination of men and the minds of men because we all know, as the Shorter Catechism states, there's only one but true and living God. He has no rivals because there are no other gods. So if the God of the nations are mere idols, imagination out of the minds of men, and there's no true God but one, then that one God, he is king over all the earth. He rules over all the earth. Although many nations and many peoples don't acknowledge their rule and his sovereignty, but regardless, he rules. And this one true living God is to be feared. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. And commentators note here that the verb that is taken fear is to be, could be taken two ways. Could be that the Lord is to be revered, like a reverential fear towards God. 
But given the theme of this psalm, it must mean more than that, more than just a reverential fear that we respect God, that we honor God, that we treat his actions as holy, everything that he does as holy. Because remember, actually there's a meaning here that the fear, because his acts inspire fear, along with reverence by the believers. Remember back when the Israelites were about to enter and conquer the, the promised land? So Joshua sends a couple of spies to not only spy the land, but especially Jericho. We're going to go through the land through Jericho. So as they arrive in Jericho, Rahab, the prostitute, hides them in their houses, in her house. And it's interesting to note that she tells the spies, once we, the inhabitants of Jericho, we heard what God had done to the Egyptians, how he had dried up the Red Sea, how he had rescued them with a mighty hand and had conquered kings on the way, Rahab says that our hearts melted with fear because the acts of God, the judgments of God should inspire fear on people. But we don't have to fear that. We have a reverential fear of God. We treat him as holy. We have no fear of judgment. There are no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we as the covenant people of God, we don't have fear of God. We trust in him, in his promise that he has chosen us and that he loves us. But regardless, we should have this reverential fear of God because of what he has done. Why? Because our God, as we see in verse 2, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. God Most High is not a local God. He just doesn't control just one section of the earth. He's not a local deity, as we'll see. And as I mentioned in the previous sermon, he's not the God of Spring Branch only. He's not the God of north of I-10, or the God of south of I-10, or east and west. He's the God of all the earth. He rules all nations, and all cities, and all states. Look at these words from Charles Spurgeon. Our God is no local deity, no petty ruler of a tribe. In infinite majesty, he rules the mightiest realms as absolute arbiter of destiny, sole monarch of all lands, king of kings and lord of lords. Not a hamlet or an islet is excluded from his dominion. How glorious will that area be when this is seen and known of all, when in the person of Jesus all flesh shall behold the glory of the Lord." Our Lord is the great king over all the earth. He is the conquering king. Because look at what he has done in verses 3 and 4. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. In these two verses, we see three key words that speaks about who God is and what he has done for his people and the relationship he has with his people. Subdued chose and love. So first, God subdued. Look with me again on verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So commentators widely agree that this reference in verse 3 is a clear reference to the conquest of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. God drove out the seven nations who were in Canaan and granted to the Israelites the promised land as their proud possession. You know, Patrick preached on Psalm 44 a few weeks ago, which also reminded the Israelites about the way that Elohim, that God drove out the nations before them and fought against their enemies, subduing them under their feet. 
Uh, listen to Psalm 44. It says, O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations of Canaan, but then you planted, your people you planted in the land. You afflicted the peoples, but then you set free. And Patrick noted that in battle after battle, the Israelites were able to conquer the promised land. And the reason why they were able to conquer is because God was the one fighting their battles. It was because God was going before them on the way. And this terminology of putting enemies under their feet, enemies under the, the, the feet of the people of God, is actually picked up in the New Testament as it relates to Christ and his enemies. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And he... God put all things in subjection under his feet, under the feet of Christ, and gave him, Christ, head over all things in the church. 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end. When he delivers, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign. He's the reigning king. He's the conquering king until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Thanks be to God. So this language of putting enemies under his feet is a language of victory. It's a language of conquering. Christ is our conquering king. Christ has conquered all our enemies through his perfect life of obedience, through his sacrificial death on the cross. He has conquered sin, Satan, the world, and death. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Thanks God that, like us, we don't have to die twice like Lazarus. Just once, because he has conquered over death. And we are appointed to die once, and we are going to be resurrected. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We are not under the power of sin and Satan anymore. And because we are in Christ, and we belong to Christ, and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have power over these enemies. We have power against our flesh, and against sin and against Satan and against the world. Christ, our conquering king, has destroyed all our enemies. But not only he has subdued all our enemies, look what else God has done. He has chosen an inheritance for us. Verse 4, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob. This is a clear reference to the land of Israel. So the psalmist is telling the people of God to praise the conquering king because God has subdued all their enemies and gave them the land of Canaan as an inheritance. So back in Genesis 12, remember some of the promises that God gave to Abraham as he called to leave uh, his land? He's, he promised Abraham that he was going to give him a great name. He promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea. God promised that he would bless him, that kings would come from Abraham. And God also promised a land for them. We also have many promises. Think about all the promises that God has promised to us. And God has also promised us a land. And it's not the earthly Israel. It's not the earthly Jerusalem. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. God has promised that we have an inheritance. Look at these words from 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance. Everything that God has promised to us, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept where? In heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, there is so much to be thankful and so many reasons that the psalmist is giving here that we should praise God and be thankful to God. So not only he subdued, not only he chose our heritage and he gave us an inheritance, look at the last word in this section. Verse 4, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Jacob, whom he loves. Israel, whom he loves. And Jacob in Israel is just a reference to the people of God. We can say, the elect, whom he loves. The church, whom God loves. And through the Exodus deliverance, through the conquest of the land of Canaan, through the numerous other victories that the Lord gave to his people, and all the victories of our Lord Jesus Christ, conquering sin, death, and Satan, all these awesome acts from God on behalf of his people are proof of God's love for us. Listen to these words of Isaiah 43, a few selected verses. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Brothers and sisters, these are incredible verses that speaks volume and that should fill our hearts with joy every time we come into his presence. Every Lord's Day, as we wake up, that we are a chosen people. Because God loved us. It is he who made us, and we are his, and we are the sheep of his pasture. Listen to these words of Mark Futaro, RTS professor. He says, these awesome acts on behalf of Israel were at the same time a demonstration of the Lord's great love for his people. The Israelites were not chosen to take possession of the promised land because they were more righteous than the Canaanites. They were not chosen because the Lord in his own... Apologize. They were chosen because the Lord in his own mysterious way loved them. Brothers and sisters, the Lord in his own mysterious way has loved us. In his own mysterious way has chosen us to be his people. And you know what is the answer that scriptures gives or why God has loved us? As Pastor Richard has been preaching through Ephesians, because he loved us. That's the reason given. He loved us with an eternal love. He loved us with an electing love. And we should praise him for being part of the covenant people of God. And the last reason we're going to see here that the psalmist gives in this first section of why we should praise our conquering king is because the Lord is ascended on high. And he is on his holy throne. Look on verse 5. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trump trumpet. So the culmination of this first section comes with this declaration that God has ascended, that God has gone up on high. And there are many other Psalms that speaks also about the ascension of God. And in Hebrew, the, the words with a shout and with the sound of the trumpet are the same words used when David first brought the ark to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. So this declaration would mean that God, as the conquering king, he has ascended to his throne. It portrays an ascent to royal, royal sovereignty. 
the enthronement of God as king. And it's interesting enough, in Christianity, in the early church, the reference to God's ascension here in Psalm 47.5 was the basis for using Psalm 47 on Ascension Day, that we celebrate the ascension of Christ. So as the conquering king, in his ascension to his heavenly throne, Christ publicly displays his conquest over his enemies, as if it was in like in a triumphant pro, uh, procession. Listen to these words of Ephesians 1, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, talking about the ascension, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. See the language of conquering here? And he put all things under the feet of Christ and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ's realm and conquering and reign is universal. He's at the right hand of the Father right now, ruling over all the nations, being head over the church. He rules, and he's a conquering king, and he's going to reign forever. And we praise our conquering king because he has ascended on high, and he sent the Holy Spirit, and he continues to grant gifts to the church for its preservation and for its advancement in the world. And because Christ has ascended on high, and he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, we should praise our conquering king. But not only should we praise our conquering king, in the second half of the psalm, we are going to see the reasons why we should praise our reigning king. And this second is going to be a lot shorter than the first section, just to give you the heads up. Look at me verses 6 and 7. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. So notice that five times in these two verses, the psalmist exhorts us to sing praises to God. And once again, he restates the truth that God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. And actually, this language that we see here of singing praises with a psalm, is to praise God intelligently. It's to praise God reverentially. It's to praise God biblically. What we sing in church has to be biblical. The lyrics need to have sound doctrine. We just don't sing any songs to God. God has appointed a special day, the Lord's Day, in which his people come to worship him in spirit and in truth. We need to have knowledge of what is sung. Sing praises with a psalm. Sing praises to God intelligently, reverentially. Sing praise to God in truth. We have to sing biblical truths. Listen to this quote from J.I. Packer, and it's quite a long quotation. Worshiping the sense of telling God his worth by his speech and song and celebrating his worth in his presence by proclamation and meditation has largely been replaced, at least in the West, by a form of entertainment calculated to give worshipers the equivalent of a sauna or a jacuzzi experience and send them away feeling relaxed and tuned up at the same time. The question is not whether a particular liturgical form is used, but whether a God-centered, as distinct from a man-centered perspective, is maintained. Whether, in other words, the sense that man exists for God rather than God for man is cherished or lost. We need to discover all over again that worship is natural to the Christian heart, as it was to the godly Israelites who wrote the Psalms. 
and that the habit of celebrating the greatness and graciousness of God yields an endless flow of thankfulness, of joy, and zeal. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Reverentially, intelligently, biblically, and yes, with emotion. Because remember Psalm, 1, uh, psalm 47, verse 1? Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud sounds of joy. We sing joyfully as well. We should come to worship and sing joyfully unto the Lord. Why should we sing in such manner? Why should we sing praises to God with a psalm? The psalmist gives the reason in verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So praise the reigning king. And through all Psalms 45 to 48, the psalmist declares that Elohim and his Messiah, they have triumphed over the nations. And he's reigning on high, and he's seated on his holy throne. Listen to Psalm 45, 6, uh, when Carlos preached last week. And this is speaking of Christ, the Messiah. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And so as Psalm 93, 2 puts it, your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Jesus Christ is a king in the order of Melchizedek. He has no beginning. He has no end. He will reign as king forever. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Praise the reigning king. And here we see a declaration that God reigns over the nations from his holy throne. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling with all authority and power. But listen to these words of Hassel Bullock. It's not a declaration that Elohim has begun his reign or that he has become king. It is rather a declaration that God is king, that he reigns unrestricted by time and unconstrained by geographical boundaries. So here we see the extent of God's government and rule over all the nations. He reigns unrestricted by time and unconstrained by geographical boundaries. He is king of all the earth. But we might look at the world around us and perhaps even our own lives, and we might think that God is not in control, that he hasn't conquered all our enemies, that he's not reigning from on high. But we have this assurance, brothers and sisters, that Christ has conquered all our enemies, that he is reigning on high, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and that his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and he works all things to the counsel and to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory. And I finish with the last verse of why we should praise our conquering king and our reigning king. Verse 9, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Do you see the words here again? Peoples and nations, the peoples of the God of Abraham. The point here is, that the peoples and the nations have become now a part of the people of God. The promise given by God back in Genesis chapter uh, 12, when God promised Abraham that through his seed, all nations on the earth would be blessed, the salvation to the whole world was to proceed from this source, from this seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are witnesses of this promise. Like I mentioned before, look at the many different nations that we have here represented today. It goes back to this promise given by God to Abraham that all nations through the seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, would be saved and would be blessed. 
The promises to Abraham have been fulfilled in Christ, are being fulfilled in Christ, and is going to be fulfilled in the future, in the consummation of all things, when the kingdom of God will finally be realized, in the kingdom that is yet to come. We are in the, not yet of the kingdom, but the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom is here already, but the consummation of all things is coming. And I finish with this last quote from Revelation 7, this is a remarkable vision that the Apostle John had. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, is standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. They worshiped the conquering king, the reigning king, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. From beginning, brothers and sisters, God's savings plan has always had this universal perspective. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for, there's so many reasons that we can praise you and worship you and celebrate today as we have spoken about. But thank you most of all for choosing us to be your people, for giving us an inheritance, for giving us eternal life, for the forgiveness of sins, and for loving us with an eternal love, with an electing love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our king, and you have conquered, and you reign, and your kingdom is forever, for you are a king forever. Your kingdom has no beginning, no end. You will rule and reign over the nations, over the church, and over your people forever and ever. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.